You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. In lots of history books, we learn this idyllic story of the American West, like the one that I heard about Teller City, settled by European pioneers sent here by destiny to make this land their home. You watch those old westerns, and a lot of times, people speak with a Swedish or Dutch accent, like in this old Bonanza episode. But I spent my life in Brussels de Dias, in the arms of God, under the stars like an animal. Since I last seen your father, I've been in 26 countries across five oceans. 26 countries and five oceans. You hear that, Adam? I sure did. That was uh, an Indian lance you were carrying, wasn't it? That big sticker? Yeah. I got that from a Comanche chief. He didn't have no more use for it. Maybe because he was dead, yeah? (laughs) Okay, the accents are pretty bad, but you get the idea. That's the Western history that's often taught. The heroes of the story were European, and Native Americans were usually the bad guys. Other immigrant stories were missing altogether. And growing up, I believed that narrative, even though I could see with my own eyes it didn't fit reality. One of my good friends growing up in tiny Walden, Colorado, was Lorenza. Winter, we spent all day on ice skates on the rink next door to her house. Summer, jumping double dutch in the middle of the street. Working at the sawmill, my dad used his clunky Spanish to chit-chat with her dad on lunch breaks. And over the years, the number of immigrants increased in North Park, filling a need for construction workers to build log homes for the wealthy. We heard all about that shortage in Episode 3, when Jim Moore had trouble getting workers to build his giant lodge. My husband, Ken, spoke Spanish all day working on construction crews in Walden and made good friends there. In communities that are ghost-towning, there are so many holes left gaping open. And a lot of times, it's immigrants who step up to fill those holes. Eastern Europeans working in restaurants. South Americans herding sheep. When my town grocery went bankrupt, it was Rosa who opened up a little grocery market selling fresh produce. Then there's the Gonzalez family, who now has a successful business selling firewood by the cord. Not to mention Rocio Nizares. Before Rocio was born, her dad started traveling up from Mexico to North Park for work. Oh, yeah, my dad was here a long time ago. I wasn't even born when he came to London. That's when I actually, you know, we first 
first moved here, and then we went back and forth. Then, when she was six years old, her dad moved her whole family to Walden. And so, just like me, all she's ever really known is North Park. And I, I did go, like, when I was a teenager out of town, and I went to Denver and Texas, and I was like, eh, I don't like this. And I came back, and I'm still here, and, like, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to live in the hot weather. Maybe because I lived here so long. <laughs> I go to Denver to visit my sister, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so hot here. I get headaches. But during that short time when she lived in Denver, she got a job at a senior center. The kitchen. And I really enjoyed the old people. I don't know, it's just maybe because I I don't have friends my age. The people that I hang out are usually like older than me. <laughs> um, and I ask the people, and they're like, you're weird. And I'm like, it's fine. For me, a party is having cookies and coffee, and that's you know what the older people usually have. Taking care of the elderly, it became a lifelong passion for Rocio. She started by cleaning houses, and it wasn't long before she was taking care of the people living in those homes. And I like to, like, help people. That's my main thing. I, especially older people. I know that there is such a need to take care of our seniors here than anything else. And I enjoy that. I just like talking to them and seeing them and getting a smile out of them and just, you know, give them a little bit of hope. When they're alone and nobody visits them. I mentioned in an earlier episode that Jackson County has the highest number of people over 90 per capita of any other in the state. So yeah, the population here is aging rapidly. Without Rocio, many seniors in North Park would have no one to care for them. There's no senior housing here, no assisted living facility. Many seniors live on fixed incomes or in outright poverty. So the need for elder care here is not just dire it's a full-blown emergency. And some of them don't speak English. So, Rocio, she's also the town translator. Sometimes they call me from, like, the post office and say, hey, um, we can't understand the amount they're saying, or I don't know if we did it right. I'm like, oh, it's just put me on speaker. They put me on speaker and we get it sold, or I go down there, or whatever it is. You know, I'm like, just holler. Yeah. And it's not like I live out of town. I live just in town, and it'll take me a minute to get to the post office or to the bank, wherever I needed. Meanwhile, Rocio has her own family to take care of. She's in her mid-30s now with three children. She has other family here, too. My dad is retired, so he doesn't work. Um, my brother-in-law, he has his own company of construction. My husband has been working at the pellet mill for 13 years. The Nazaras family, each of them, stepping up to fill needs in a struggling town sustaining it a little longer before it slides all the way into ghost towning. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Today, we continue the story of migration in the American West, We see how the trajectory of our history was leading toward more diverse communities, but where that derailed and is still derailing. Ivy Engel is a lot like me. She grew up in Glenrock, Wyoming, a town of 2,500 that sits right in the middle of the nation's energy basket. And she grew up with that same screwy view of Western history that I did. She started digging in search of a more accurate picture. 
Right now, the West is struggling to diversify its economy. But would our economy have already been diversified if a greater diversity of people had been allowed to make their homes here? And maybe, just maybe, do we still have a chance to build such an economy now? Or could history start to repeat itself with the anti-immigrant rhetoric and policy decisions of the last few years? To answer these questions, I took a look at immigrant towns of the past. First, the Chinatowns of the West. They offer a good look at how the West might have been different if immigration hadn't been so mishandled here. When you think of Chinatown, it might be the one in San Francisco. And many men did come from China to California during the gold rush, hoping to strike it rich like everyone else. But following the rush, they spread across the West, following employment with the Transcontinental Railroad. I remember learning about it in fourth grade. The railroad allowed East Coasters to migrate West and colonize, but that's about all we learned on the topic. There was no mention of who built all these railroads. Turns out it was largely Chinese immigrants. I found that out from Dudley Gardner. He's a historian and archeologist who has been excavating Chinatowns in Wyoming for over 40 years. He says that most Chinese workers worked for the railroad either repairing the rails or mining coal to feed the trains. And Chinese businesses sprang up along the tracks to serve all of these workers. They would open restaurants and they would open laundries. Statistically, they say, or cost-wise, it cost only $200 to open up a laundry. You would make that money back in two or three months. Through time, there were less and less Chinese coal miners, less and less Chinese railroad workers, but more and more Chinese entrepreneurs. These merchants helped make Chinatowns feel more like real towns. But Chinese immigrants weren't allowed to bring their families with them to America. So some of the hallmarks of towns, like schools, didn't exist. And it's no wonder many Chinese immigrants started their own businesses. They continuously got the short end of the stick from the rail companies. William Wei is a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder who specializes in modern Chinese history. He says Chinese immigrants that worked for the railroad did backbreaking work. They were recruited to do this work, a work that was comparable to what other uh, railroad workers, uh, white railroad workers were doing, but they were paid uh, less uh, for the same work. And not only were they paid less, but they had to do it under uh, worse working conditions, and they had to work longer hours. Chinese rail workers did try striking once to demand higher wages, but the Union Pacific Railroad Company quickly defeated them. Rock Springs is a little sagebrush town along the railroad in the southwestern part of the state. Colorful hills surround it where wild horses roam. Its quaint downtown sits by the train tracks, and it's not hard to imagine its Wild West era. The town was one of the stops that had a thriving Chinatown. Jennifer Messer is the museum coordinator at the Rock Springs Historical Museum. She says that Chinese laborers not only faced discrimination at work, but they also had to live in a different section of the coal towns. UP built them their own set of houses on the outskirts of town, away from everyone else. There are hundreds and hundreds of examples of communities being extremely anti-Chinese and being really ugly and really angry about them here. And Rock Springs wasn't any different. Um, the Finnish miners here in town were trying really hard to unionize, and they were trying to raise the price per day of coal. Um, the Chinese miners weren't having any of that. The white miners were angry because the Chinese workers felt like they couldn't rock the boat. Even though they faced discrimination, they were glad to have a job. 
That fed the powder keg that eventually blew in 1885. In September of that year, one of the mine bosses in Rock Springs sent a few Chinese miners into a coal room to be cleaned out. Miners were paid by the ton of coal. Other miners had already gotten down to the coal, and now the Chinese workers just had to finish cleaning it out of the pit. They were going to get paid for the coal when they didn't do the hard work of getting to it. The Chinese miners protested, but the mine bosses insisted. So they went to work. And when the Finnish miners showed up, a fight started underground. Um, One of the Chinese miners was killed underground. The mine bosses actually shut the mine down, sent everybody home. Um, There's accounts that for probably the only time ever, they closed all the bars in Rock Springs so that people would try to stay sober and this would not turn into a major production. Um, But a group of the European miners, the white miners, got together and talked about forcing the Chinese out of town. And so they marched on Chinatown. Um, They ended up killing 28 of the Chinese miners here. The bodies of those 28 miners were the only ones they could identify. But there were reports of pieces of bodies that were never attached to a name. Lots of miners fled into nearby hills and were apparently never seen again. It's likely that many more died from wounds or the elements. This attack shaped the future of the West by destroying the growing diversity in the region. But for me, a kid growing up only a few hours away in Glenrock, Wyoming, I'd never heard of it until just recently. My history classes conveniently left out this messy bit of local history. And teachers across the state aren't required by the Wyoming Department of Education to cover it either. Dr. Wei describes it as an intentional suppression of history. They are erased from American history because uh, of the way we construct our master narrative. Uh, That is to say, how we understand ourselves. And how we understand ourselves is essentially as a white nation. And therefore, all other folks, and that includes uh, other people of color, including uh, blacks, uh, Latinx, uh, American Indians, as well as uh, Asian Americans, you know, have been uh, marginalized in that history. If anything, yeah, uh, we have been um, yeah, uh, relegated uh, to, the, to the margins. To make sure it stayed a white majority, the United States passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. The government didn't allow new Chinese immigrants into the country until the act was repealed in 1943. Even after Congress repealed it, Asian Americans didn't have the option to become citizens and vote for another nine years. And they weren't the only group the United States government blocked from citizenship. The U.S. didn't grant Native American citizenship until 1924, but the right to vote was governed by state law. Some states barred Native Americans from voting until 1957. These deliberate attempts to erase whole groups of people worked. It's difficult to believe today that there were Chinatowns all over the American West, uh, as many as uh, over 200 of them. And yet they were driven out of those. Uh, Often they were burned out, violently driven out. And these events weren't just perpetrated by just some random people. Police officers and judges oftentimes looked the other way, and sometimes even joined in. Take Porvenir, Texas. It's a tiny town in deep desert West Texas, right on the border with Mexico. 
It's one of those towns that started in Mexico and then found itself in the U.S. when the border crossed it after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. In 1918, Texas Rangers, U.S. Cavalry soldiers, and local ranchers descended upon the village, separated 15 men and boys from their families, brought them out of town, and shot them at close range. The women and children fled across the nearby border to Mexico, and shortly after, the posse raised the town. The rangers claimed that they had found evidence that the people of Porvenir had been involved in the raid of a nearby ranch. Their claims were never proven, though. Only after pressure from the Mexican government, the Texas Ranger Company B was disbanded. A few men were fired, but none of the posse were convicted for the murders. Many small Latino towns like Porvenir became ghost towns because of racist events like this one. Now, all that's left of Porvenir is a historic marker recognizing the massacre. It's a simple sign beside the highway that summarizes the events of that terrible night and lists the names of the victims. But that small remembrance took over a century to get erected, and even that saw a lot of pushback. That's something Rock Springs knows a lot about. Local schools didn't teach the Rock Springs massacre until the year 2000. There's a museum exhibit and a few local monuments and art pieces dedicated to the Chinese immigrants and the massacre, but the city didn't erect the monument until 2016. It's nothing more than a large sandstone rock with a plaque on it just on the edge of the historic Chinatown's location. Some residents say this isn't enough. Others fight the idea of creating more monuments and drawing more attention to past mistakes. And Jennifer from the Rock Springs Historical Museum says this debate isn't a new one. I think Rock Springs has this very complicated feeling towards it. It's this really awful thing. There was political commentary in newspapers back east that they should raise Rock Springs to the ground that it should cease to exist post-Chinese massacre. Because what is wrong with you people? Except the whole country already has this sentiment. You have the Chinese Exclusion Act. That's, that's literally what you guys want to do. <laughs> and Dr. Wei says an unwelcoming past can make an area still feel unwelcoming today. But there are a few small steps the town can make to set things right and make it more welcoming for those of Chinese descent and maybe other immigrants, too. Coming to terms with the past is a major step, and that starts with recognizing that the events occurred and sharing that history with others. But you can at least render an apology, you know, uh, uh, say you understand, you know, that this was a, a tragedy and you can uh, apologize for it. I think that means a lot to the descendants. You know, people... Uh, appreciate uh, when uh, people own up to their mistakes, right? And I think if you want to prevent this sort of thing from happening again, you have to basically teach people about these past events and put them in historical context. You know, why did it occur? Which makes me think, is a monument enough? Coming up after the break, how this racist history is affecting rural Western towns that rely on immigrant families to survive. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. 
This season of the Modern West is sponsored by the Argosy Foundation, committed to supporting diverse people and programs that make society a better place to live. More information is available at argosyfnd.org. The Argosy Foundation is a philanthropic organization focused on leveraging the impact of people and organizations working to make the world a better place, employing creative and entrepreneurial approaches that help people to help themselves. Argosy works to ensure that their partners become successfully self-sustaining. The intention of this work is to solve systemic problems, build teams and communities, create replicable solutions and inspire others to contribute in their own ways. To learn more about this mission and the Argosy's work, visit argosyfnd.org. Immigrant stories may have been buried in the ruins of ghost towns of the Old West, but lately those stories have been rising up out of the ashes once again. I grew up in Glenrock, Wyoming, a town that's almost completely dependent on the boom and bust cycle of coal and oil. I've seen businesses born in boom times that die a few short years later when the next bust rolls through town. It's a common tune in the West, and it's caused many young people to leave for better opportunities. A larger immigrant population could help Glenrock and other small towns break free from the cycle. Stephen Camarota is the director of research at the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C., so this is a subject he thinks a lot about. He says many immigrants in the West today are like Rosio Nazares, who came to Walden from Mexico when she was six. They come for jobs and end up staying for the outdoorsy lifestyle. The Mountain West has certain advantages. It has a reasonably good economy. It has low cost of living and relatively, um, you know, uh, available jobs. So these things have attracted more and more native-born people. And, you know, immigrants and natives tend to move to the same sorts of places. So if small towns are already failing, a big question is how they can attract immigrants to move there and then keep them there once they come. Well, Rocio, for one, says she has no desire to move away from Walden. I honestly don't see me living out of Walden. It's a great place for the kids to grow. And it's just, I don't know, I I like the peace, the people, the community, how... When you get to know them, they take care of you, you take care of them, and they're just, it's that family thing that you, you're not going to find anywhere else. But she says it hasn't been that easy for other Latino families. When I was little, there used to be a lot of families, and a lot of them moved. I know a lot of them didn't move. Like, a lot of them went to Laramie. A lot of them went to Laramie. A lot of them went to Fraser, Granby. Um that they used to live here. So they didn't go very far, but they did move. There's not enough jobs here in Walden. Like, it's just basically the River Rock, um, the Mad Moose, the grocery stores, gas stations, and pretty much that's it. That they opened the pellet mill, but other than that, it's like, it's pretty small. Rosio says with so few jobs, Walden is losing Latino families fast. Without easy access to basic necessities, it's a hard place to raise kids. I don't know, maybe like a real store? And we have a little grocery store, but we have a dollar store, and thank God they put the dollar store that have have helped a lot. But, like, if you really, like, I don't know if you need maybe, say, like, for showering, stuff like that, or clothing, then you would have to go, 
either the Fort Collins, Steamboat has some, or Laramie has some. But that means that towns like Walden need to value the work of people like Rosio. She told me this one story. Like right now, I was, I'm helping a lady that she has cancer, and she has to go to Laramie Army to get her chemo. Sometimes she comes back, and she's really sick. She's not in the mood, you know. She's very weak. And then she's like, and then I, I recoup for a day or two, and then I have to go back. And it's, she's like, it's just killing me, and it's, you know. And she was by herself. Yeah. Her husband died a few years ago, so it's like, and I tell her all the time, if you need help with anything, just let me know. I'm like, yeah. I'm happy to help you, and if you don't have income, if you, it's fine. You don't need to pay me. I just, you know, I want you to be okay, and just anything you need, let me know. In case you didn't catch that, Rocio is often giving care to Walden seniors for free. She thinks of it as an extension of the other charity work that she does for her church. Are you making enough money if you're if you're doing some of this kind of work for free, or are you are you making ends meet? I, I don't I don't make a lot of money. Like right now, I'm not getting. I was helping Callie, and now like I don't know. Clients have been not that much. But usually, I you know I used to work at the clinic, and they used to pay me when they call me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually now the people call me, and I don't charge the people. So Rocio is doing an absolutely essential service in Walden and getting very little payment for her vital services. But she's hoping to turn that around. These days, she's attending online training to get her nursing certificate so she can help people with even more services. Um, I heard about Workforce and Steamboat, and they're going to help me pay for them. Just to get certified and, you know, go more the legal way. And I started some, and then they canceled them because of the COVID. So they said maybe they start again during spring. Hopefully they'll do that. I'm working on some online. Some of the people don't have the income, like, to go to college for this. Um, and like I said, this, this program that did pay for mine is pretty awesome. The state is now paying to get Rocio her nursing certification. But small towns could do more for community members like Rocio, like help entrepreneurs remodel their buildings, make sure opportunities are advertised bilingually, and make people feel welcome the way Rocio says that she does in Walden. Recently, she says a member of Jackson County's school board invited her to join. But she's so swamped with all the other work she does in the community that she had to tell him she'll think about it. That she was like, you want to, hey, Rod, you want to work um, with the school board? I'm like, uh, let, me, let me think about it there for a little bit because I, you know, he's like, I think it would be really helpful because you could tell the... Hispanic people, what's going on, like, especially in schools, if you guys want to change something, if you think they should address something, if you think there's being preferences and stuff like that. And I told them, I said, well, give me a, a year to think about it. Like, let, let me see and <laughs> give yeah. me some time and I'll give back with you. And he asked me the other day, have you thought about it? I'm like, yeah, I haven't thought about it. I might just go in and see what happens. Who knows? <laughs> Making people feel more welcome is exactly the type of thing that can help save a small town. Megan Lawson is an economist with the research group Headwater Economics. She worked on a study that found that three out of every four counties in the rural West grew in population since 1980. And most of that growth came from the influx of minority populations. 
Of the 75 counties where the overall population decreased, minority populations continued to grow in all but two counties. About a quarter of all counties in the West would have lost population if it were not for growth in the um, in minorities. So because of um, people of color moving into a community, these places are kind of in some ways being kept afloat. Um, so folks moving in are um, keeping uh, schools open, they're keeping grocery stores, um, you know, solvent and those kinds of day-to-day things that um, really sustain, uh, sustain a place. Stephen Camarota, the immigration studies researcher, agrees. He says a lot of people are like Rosio and immigrate because of family and friends who have already moved to the United States. And then more people come as friends and family and social networks develop, then you get a, uh, um, you know, you, you, you get a more follow on immigration. And so that's the kind of thing you're seeing in a place like uh, Nebraska is um, people had come to work in particular industries and now you're getting more follow-on immigration from as people from the same community or from the same family, uh, family broadly defined, extended family, join people in Nebraska. But Stephen says the rhetoric and legislation of the Trump era has had a ripple effect on such communities. Fewer immigrants have been trying to enter the country, and those who do have faced tougher restrictions. And in the face of harsher crackdowns, undocumented workers may decide to return to their home country and bring any native-born or documented family members, including children, with them. That extra out-migration could have a really big impact on rural western towns. Because not only would these towns lose their immigrant populations, which are helping stabilize them, but they would also lose even more of their native-born population than they already were. Luckily, Rosio has no plans to leave Walden, but if she did, many elderly residents might have to move away too. This could spell doom for an already declining small town. According to U.S. Census Bureau data, the most common age of all minorities in the U.S. in 2018 was 27. The most common age of Hispanics was just 11 years old. Meanwhile, the most common age of the white population was 58. As the already older white population continues aging, the younger immigrant population can continue to carry their communities forward. Without minorities, small towns will lose populations much faster and start ghost towning as businesses and people leave the area. It got me wondering, what could help make a community like Glenrock appeal to immigrants? So I called Mo Kantner, the director of state and local initiative at New American Economy, They're a bipartisan research and advocacy organization focused on making an economic case for smarter immigration reform. We have an amazing research team that can uh, look at the role of immigrants within specific communities, within specific industries, um, and within sort of subsets of the quote-unquote immigrant population. So looking at those that are highly skilled and working in the STEM field or looking at refugees or looking at the DACA population. Um, And we use this original research to really bring um, people together from both sides of the aisle who um, were, you know, really tired of having these polarized conversations and wanted to have sort of a baseline conversation rooted in the, the facts of Um, immigration and how we need immigrants as a country. 
And New American Economy has this really cool program that they co-manage called Gateways for Growth, or G4G. And it works to help communities become more welcoming and supportive of immigrants at a local level. Towns can receive localized research on the impacts of immigrants on their community and their economy, or information on barriers that can keep immigrants from being successful. Communities can also receive assistance to build a strategic welcoming plan or a strategic immigrant integration plan. Those plans help build a structure within the community that supports immigrants by increasing accessibility and creating and supporting existing resources. Each plan is tailored to each community, and Mo said there's a lot of similarities between communities that apply for G4G. And those similarities sound an awful lot like many places in the rural West. I will say that at NAE and within the state and local team, where we um, tend to find uh, the most interest from communities is where there is a bit of um, population decline, where there is um, this risk of, you know, a, com- a combination of an aging population and a population that's leaving some of these sort of Midwest communities um, that are, are looking for opportunities elsewhere. And that's really where um, immigrants can play a huge role in helping support those communities and, and revive some of those local um, economies and communities. But I wanted to know, if it's already struggling, what can attract immigrants to a small town? So honestly, a lot of the times it's, it's access to uh, workforce, it's access to job, it's filling in those, um, you know, those, those job openings and those, those job gaps that we're seeing in places across the country um, that can be really compelling for immigrant community. And then the second thing they look for is for others within their own community, right? Um, that's how they can, you know, transition to um, a community within the U.S. a bit more smoothly is by having a support system in place that's there, that understands their sort of their cultural needs, their, um, you know, linguistic needs, anything like that, just sort of helping ensure a smooth transition into the U.S. But immigration policies have left many families feeling under attack. Lowered immigration caps keep new migrants from coming into the country. And the Remain in Mexico policy that requires asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for entry into the country even further limits the number of immigrants. Some of these new policies really do feel like a flashback to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1943. But I will say it, is, it has definitely been a tumultuous time um, for the past few years for the immigration community, um, just with a lot of changes and a lot of um, things being changed and then being changed back and a lot of uncertainty. And I know that that uncertainty has been difficult um, for uh, a number of folks that work in the immigration space. Um, So we will see what the years uh, ahead bring, um, but we are um, hoping for at least a little bit more, like I said, stability in that area. But Stephen, the immigration researcher, says the next four years are expected to be a bit more stable. Biden has said, for example, that he doesn't want to deport anyone in the first hundred days. So you would guess anyone here who's thinking about going or worrying about running afoul of the law would be more likely to stay and see how things play out. A newfound sense of security could help immigrants become comfortable enough to put down roots in their community. And this could encourage the type of follow-on immigration that Stephen talked about, bringing in and building strong rural communities. That was Ivy Engel. She had help with her reporting from Cooper McKim. 
So yeah, there's not as much immigration coming in from outside the U.S. borders these days. And that's hurting rural towns. But globalization, and now the pandemic, have led to major cultural changes within the U.S., causing people to uproot and move. It's led to migrations like my own that took me away from my hometown. It's part of what some people call the great brain drain, the out-migration of rural youth. But then there's migrations like my classmate Matt Schuler's that actually brought him back again. We moved to Fort Collins for a while, and I managed a lumberyard in Greeley for until he shut it down. And then one night, we were going to Walmart, and asked Michelle how her day was, and she said, pretty good, I quit my job, and we're moving to Walmart. Okay. I said, have you thought it out? She goes, nope, I'm just telling you. Why young people leave small towns, and what could lure us back, next time on The Modern West. You can check out photos of the Rock Springs Chinatown at our website, themodernwest.org. And we'd love to hear your stories of how immigrants are helping your small town stay afloat. Find us on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Aaron Jones is our story editor. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Micah Schweitzer is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.